Hello and welcome to the New Thinking Podcast. This is Avni Majitia Sagevala from the Center for Court Innovations, and today I'm joined by Judge Steve Leifman, who is the Associate Administrative Judge of the Miami-Dade County Court in Florida and the presiding judge of Miami's Criminal Mental Health Project. Welcome to our podcast, Judge Leifman. Thank you very much. So I wanted to start by talking about Miami. The statistics say that Miami has a very large population of people dealing with mental illness, almost 10%, which is more than any other urban community in the U.S. You have said that the county jail serves as the largest psychiatric facility in the state of Florida. Why do you say that? Miami-Dade County has a very high prevalence of mental illness, um, as you stated, of any urban area in the United States. That really comes from a couple factors. Um, one, we start with our own norm of mental illness, which is probably three to five percent. And then um, we pick up a couple percent from our weather. A lot of times family members or people with mental illnesses, they don't want to be in Chicago or New York during the cold winters. And so they end up coming down to South Florida uh, to escape the bad weather. And then also during the Mariel boat lift in the 80s, Castro literally emptied all the psychiatric facilities onto the boats of people that were actually fleeing for political freedom from Cuba. And so between the other factors and our own norm, it's a very, very high prevalence. Unfortunately, Florida also is very poor in its funding of mental health issues, um, depending on the data, anywhere from 48th to 50th per capita mental health funding. And so only about 1% of the people in Dade County who actually need services get access to the kind of services that they need. And so um, there's a large unmet need. And so many people, unfortunately, will end up in the acute systems of care, which sometimes means the Dade County Jail. And when we say mental illness, what are we talking about? We are not talking about sociopaths. We are talking about people that have been diagnosed with an organic brain illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. And then I wanted to ask you about the 11th Judicial Circuit Criminal Mental Health Project, which you helped to establish in the year 2000. What's the history behind it? Why was it created? And what does it do? It actually started as a result of a case that I had uh, in 2000 where I had a defendant who turned out to be a Harvard-educated psychiatrist who had an onset of schizophrenia and had become homeless and was recycling through the criminal justice system. And it was really pretty traumatic for all of us involved in the case. Um, He had a full-blown psychotic episode in my courtroom, and it was an eye-opener into how inadequate our community mental health system was, as well as the court's response for people with mental illnesses. If you had a serious mental illness and you were arrested on a low-level misdemeanor charge, the court, on the vast majority of cases, we were just releasing people back to the street, telling them to go see a psychiatrist uh, for competency restoration. We were putting people who were very ill back out on the street without any access to treatment. And so I was able to bring together a meeting of all the traditional and non-traditional stakeholders. We literally mapped out how our criminal justice system intersected with our community mental health system. And frankly, it didn't. And I think once we had mapped it out and realized how poor of a response we had, we had an obligation and a responsibility to make some significant change. And it was for everybody's sake to improve public safety, to spend our tax dollars more efficiently, and equally important to help people who have illnesses have access to recovery. We decided we needed a two-part approach. We needed to stem the flow of people coming into the system that were coming in unnecessarily. And we also needed to have an approach where people 
um, that did penetrate the criminal justice system so that we could get them out if it was an appropriate thing to do. So we created a very expansive, what's called Crisis Intervention Team Police Program. Over the years, we have actually trained over 4,700 police officers, including every single agency in Miami-Dade County, and it has made a startling difference. Between 2010 and 2015, we handled 48,000 669 mental health calls and only made 109 arrests. It had a significant impact on the reduction of our jail. It actually helped us close one of our jails. We also realized that we also needed to set up post-arrest diversion program. Um, We initially set up a misdemeanor diversion program whereby any individual with a serious mental illness who's arrested for misdemeanor, if they meet criteria for involuntary hospitalization, generally within three days, we have them diverted from our jail into one of our community crisis stabilization units. We reset the case for a couple of weeks. And during that period, A, we allow them to become more stable. But at the same time, my team is working on lining up their benefits, finding them housing, getting all these supports in place that people need for recovery. And it's been phenomenally successful. Our recidivism rate dropped from uh, over 70% to about uh, 20% today. Our state attorney allowed us to expand it to our nonviolent felony cases. So we put into play about five years ago a felony diversion program. And that program has a recidivism rate of only about 6%. For those that complete the program, which is about 70%, and the program alone has saved the county between 35 and 40 years of jail bed days. And we've set up a third program that diverts people from competency restoration hospitals and keeps them in a local facility. And instead of just emphasizing on restoring competency, we actually focus on reintegrating them back into the community. Would you say that deincarceration is the way forward? I think jail should be the last resort for people with mental illnesses. It shouldn't be the first entry point for people with mental illness, which it has become. Our jails have become the defense facto mental health facilities all around the country, and it's really not fair. Uh, Most of these individuals have serious trauma issues, and an arrest often re-traumatizes them. And, you know, their lives are generally so fragile to begin with that even a day in jail can help further the the stigma against them, sever ties from employment, from housing, from family, and make it even that much more difficult for them to reintegrate. Now, there are some people that do commit crimes that are offensive enough or dangerous enough that need to be in bars. So the program really is about identifying the people that don't need to be in jail and making sure that we get them out. One of the things that we do now is we use a risk assessment tool and we evaluate everybody that comes through our program and line up the right services for each individual. So the key is to really understanding what the individual needs, doing our best to line up the right services for that particular individual, and then help reintegrate, reassociate them back into the community. And if you do that with all the supports and services that they need, this population can do very well. In fact, what most people don't understand is that number one is people with mental illnesses are no more dangerous than the general population. Um, and on medication, they actually have a much lower uh, propensity for any kind of violent crimes than people without mental illness. 
Uh, sadly, they're much more likely to be victims of violent crimes than perpetrators. And the other thing I don't think people understand is that most people, you know, with mental illnesses have much better recovery rates than actually people with diabetes and heart disease. The key to these illnesses, just like most illnesses, is, you know, identifying them early and, you know, treating people early. I think the problem arises when we ignore the problem and we see people who have been sick for many years and have had many psychotic episodes. So what we're trying to do in our community as well is um, working with our school system now to educate all of our teachers so that they can do a better job identifying kids that are showing signs and symptoms of mental illness so that we don't wait for them to grow up in our system, but try to get them access to treatment at a much earlier stage. We look at this as not as a court problem or a court solution, but really a community problem that requires a community solution. And it really requires a community to come together and to make the kind of structural changes that are necessary that help access treatment for people. And within the courtroom, how do you balance responding to the treatment needs of defendants with the need for public safety? If somebody commits a violent offense, you know, that is not someone that's probably a good candidate for our program. The people that we accept in our program are, A, generally charged with committing, you know, low-level nonviolent offenses, nor do they have histories of committing violent offenses. There are very good risk assessment tools on whether or not that they're going to commit further crimes in the future. And so we do use those. And it may sound counterintuitive, but the people that are scoring moderate to high um, risk are the ones that we want in the program because those are the ones you want to wrap your arms around, get them the right services, follow them more closely and monitor them so that they're not picking up new offenses. But the people with low risk don't need that kind of court supervision. They're going to be absolutely fine back in the community, and the chances of them reoffending are very, very, very low. And so. I think as communities look to set up these types of programs, the key is to take the moderate and higher risk people who are going to get out of jail anyway and make sure that we're appropriately monitoring them and helping them change their ways, getting them housing, getting them case management, getting them peer specialists so that we know that they are going to stay out of trouble and stop committing offenses. And by doing that, you get better outcomes, you spend your dollars more wisely, and you have a bigger, better impact on improving our public safety. In your experience in dealing with mental illness in the justice system over the decades, have you seen a change in the justice system response to mental illness? That's a great question, yes. There has been a sea change in how the courts are beginning to approach and deal with people with mental illnesses. And there's a lot of initiatives that are going on, and particularly since prevalence is just so high in the criminal justice system. We started uh, several years ago an organization called the Judges Leadership Initiative, and we've created a parallel group called the Psychiatric Leadership Group. We now go around the country training judges on how to identify people with mental illnesses, how to respond better in court, and how the judge can be kind of the community facilitator to bring people together to make the kind of structural changes, changes that are necessary to have a better improved response. And so it's, it's, you know, and there's a national movement going on right now. We've begun this um, initiative called Stepping Up. And more than 250 counties in the United States, representing more than a third of the American population, have passed these resolutions 
agreeing to step up to reduce the overrepresentation of people with mental illnesses. The jails are now spending almost $70 billion a year to partially deal with this problem, and it's enormously expensive. It cuts into infrastructure projects. It, it, it deal, you know, affects our tax base, and it's such an unnecessary waste of money because we don't get good outcomes from what we do today. I also wanted to talk to you about a very interesting book called Crazy by the reporter Pete Early, which was a personal but also investigative look at mental illness in the justice system. He got access to the Miami-Dade County Jail for research. Were you involved in that decision? Was it an easy decision to give him access or were there reservations yes, about it? I felt that it was incredibly important for someone to tell a story. And while the focus was on the Miami-Dade County Jail and some of the horrors that went on there, it could have been any jail in the United States. He did a brilliant job documenting what goes on, and I think it really was illuminating for a lot of people in the country and helped us take a critical look at our own system. And we've been able to almost use his book as a blueprint on how to improve our system. And the difference between today and when he wrote that book are night and day. We closed down the horrible ninth floor that he uh, highlights in his book. We opened up two jail floors that are just for people with mental illnesses. You know, instead of sticking our heads in the dirt and resisting what was going wrong, we fixed it. So would you say that opening up the jail to scrutiny from a reporter has actually benefited Miami? There's no doubt. And it wasn't just Pete. We also opened it up to our local CBS affiliate. Inevitably, the Justice Department came in and took a hard look at our jail. And all those things helped. Since that day, we have special training for our corrections officers. There's been a significant reduction in violence on those floors since we've made those changes. And we're getting people out of the system and not keeping them so long. So it's less of a burden on the justice system and the jail system to be on. I wanted to ask you about the state of mental illness in the justice system today, what you think the challenges are and what the future can perhaps look like. I think we're turning a corner. We have a long way to go, but we have finally acknowledged and recognized that we have a problem. It's also, interestingly, pleasantly enough, one of the only nonpartisan issues that we have seen in my legislature as well as in Congress. Part of the problem is that we have today is aside from inadequate community resources to handle some of these and the capacity to handle some of these problems, all of the laws regarding both treatment and financing for mental health were really written 40 and 50 years ago. These laws were all written at a time when most people with serious mental illnesses were still in state hospital. It really requires a modernization of the laws so that they better reflect the science, research, and medicine of you know psychiatry and mental health. And as we begin to do that, I think we'll start to see this great sea change. And on that note, I think we will conclude this podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Judge Leifman. Sure. Thank you for doing this. I'm Avni Majitia Sejpal, and you've been listening to the New Thinking Podcast. To hear more of our podcasts, visit our website at www.courtinnovation.org. Thanks so much for listening.